Good morning, Church of the Cross. My name is Kimberly, and I am one of the priests here as well. We have a guest preacher with us this morning, Erin. And Erin um, and her husband, Mike, recently moved to Waco, and they are at All Saints, which is another church in our diocese. And we're very excited to welcome Erin to preach for us this morning. She's on staff at Baylor. She's a chaplain there, and I'm going to get it wrong, the director for the chapel at Baylor. Erin also is an author. She does a lot of work around spiritual formation and programming um, for emerging adults. And so we're just really thankful to have her here this morning. Let's pray. Come forward, I'll pray over you. Please um, extend your hand and let's say a word of prayer over our sister, Erin. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you as a collective body, Lord. And we pray over Erin this morning as she preaches from the gospel of John, Lord. We pray, God, that each of us leave here having heard a word from the message that she shares, Lord. Give her strength and wisdom, Lord, as she shares. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. Good morning, and thank you for that welcome. Um, this is my first time at your church uh, and being a part of this community, so I'd like to get something very important out of the way right off the bat. How many of you like to bake for fun? How many bake? Yes, the bakers. Yes. You're like, this is, this is my thing. Oh, that's so wonderful. So I just want to make a, yeah, just make a note. Me, me, not so much with the baking. I fulfill the other part of the friendship, which is the eating. I love the eating, and I love all of you so much who love to bake for fun, because we always know, like, I know who's making the birthday cake, right? If there's going to be a shower, I know who's bringing the cupcakes. You are good people, you who bake for fun. We, we love this. But when you start to do this, people tend to notice, right? They tend to know that you're that person, and so they just sort of assume, right, that, that that's what's going to happen. Like, oh, so-and-so will surely bring said baked good that is required for said event. You're that guy, aren't you? You're that guy. Um, now, some of you are like, yeah, I'm that guy for something else. Maybe I'm good with cars. Maybe, you know, a lot of times what will happen is we'll have a thing that's sort of off to the side, but people start to notice, and we get pegged like, oh, you're that guy. I mention this because as we look at our passage today, uh, there's some, some interesting details that just get thrown in, and usually when that is the case, this is something that the author wants us to know. The story sort of bookended by an interesting start and finish. He starts with, once more, he, Jesus, visited Canaan, Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And then after our very last verse, it says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So something is happening here that we're noticing, something important that says, you know, the last time Jesus was here, the only miracle that he performed, this is the second one, so as he's entering, everyone remembers, oh, we remember this guy, right? We know what Jesus did last time he was here. He turned water into wine. You remember that wedding, that party? That was awesome. Jesus, hey, good to see you back here, bud. Jesus is that guy. And I think this helps us a little bit with understanding Jesus' response to the royal official or, or nobleman. Um, because I don't know, maybe, maybe you, like I, might have been judging Jesus just a little bit after reading his response to the nobleman with the sick child, right? This guy comes to him and he's like, my child is sick, he is dying. And Jesus says something a little uh, unpastoral, right? In verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Can we be honest that scripture is, is, is sometimes a little cringy, right? We're like, oh, Jesus, you people, we don't really say that. That's a little pejorative. 
right? We, we feel like, like we almost want to explain, no, 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 really, he's a great guy. We, we want to kind of, why would, but really, why would Jesus say this to a grieving father? This, this story, though small, forces us to focus on a few uncomfortable facts that might be hitting a little close to home in some of our lives. The first uncomfortable fact is that it exposes that no level of affluence or money can secure us from tragedy, illness, or heartbreak. We don't know much about this official. We don't know his name. We know that he's a noble, a royal official of some kind, which we can assume means that there's a sense of, uh, of influence and power and even wealth. And yet, he is here before Jesus begging for his child's life. And we know, for those of us sitting here, globally speaking, we are the rich, right? And we know, we know that even though we have a lot of power and a lot of privilege and a lot of influence, we know that, that there's nothing we can actually do to fully insulate ourselves from like hard things that happen in life. And yet, we try, right? I try. I teach this sermon, and friends, I will still go out and try because I don't want to believe that this world is as broken as it is or that I have so little control over how comfortable and insulated I want to be. And often for me, it, it causes sort of a, a sense of entitlement that drives me to, to sort of a, a deep pain when something blindsides me from the brokenness of the world and I lash out. There's something about this idea that exposes our false ideas of the world and of ourself. This nobleman is all of us. And the second uncomfortable fact is similar to the first. There are great evils and injustices that plague our world. Even children are not exempt from irreconcilable tragedy. Our theology takes shape in a crucible of unspeakable difficulties like a fatally ill child. This and other senseless evils prompt questions and laments that even our prophets and poets have struggled to articulate. But we recognize this is the pain point of the passage, right? If we look at it with both eyes open, it leads us to understand why this is not just some throwaway miracle passage. Because there's this temptation with this passage, I think. Like I said, we spend a lot of our energy on our agency and our ability to create safety and stability in our lives, I know I do. But when we are blindsided by a broken world, we're often quick to reach for new avenues of control and bargaining, even the temptation to use a passage like this one as a formula for God's miraculous intervention in our own struggles, right? If we just have faith, just believe God will do that thing that we want. Genie God is just waiting for the magic words. But we can't just reduce this story to a spiritual Ikea manual because there's so much more going on. So that pressure point I mentioned, it focuses on something at the heart of this passage, right? A father begging for the life of his child. And this is the driving force of this interaction. And we can infer some things based on the few lines that we have recorded. So first we can infer that there is a measure of faith that is already at work in this royal official. The passage doesn't say whether or not he was already in Canaan, Galilee, or if he had traveled from where he was in Capernaum, which was no short distance, but scholars imagine that he actually traveled from Capernaum, which, which shows that he, he's 
He's already exercising a certain amount of faith, even if it's just in Jesus as this miracle worker. The second thing we can infer is that his grief and anxiety are evident, palpable, right? There's, there's a cadence in this passage. It can remind us of another story. So when Jesus says, oh, you people need signs and wonders, um, it, it harkens back to another exchange Jesus had with a Gentile woman who then responds, with, oh, yes, but even the dogs can lick up the crumbs underneath the table, right? And there's like this, this back and forth. But we don't have that here. Jesus says what he says, and all this man says back is exactly what he said before. He doesn't respond to Jesus at all. He just says, sir, come down before my child dies. Have you ever been swallowed up with so much pain and hurt that you just have no bandwidth to argue? You don't have the words. Cleverness is not something you can reach for at this time. This man exposes that this is the state that he is in. No arguing, no bartering, just repeating his plea. And the third thing we can infer is that his journey, which began with faith in seeking a miracle for his child, ended with faith in something so much more. See, if we're going to examine the theme of belief in this passage, there are some interesting complexities. So often in the ancient world, there was a common belief that miracles required the physical presence of a healer. So we see this oftentimes, people going to Jesus for a miracle. Will you come? Will you come and be present? Will you come and do this miracle? Here, we're going to bring this guy to you. We're going to lower him down. There's a, there's a sense of presence that the healer needs to be present with the person for the miracle to happen. And oftentimes, Jesus is. Oftentimes in the stories, we see Jesus actually being present in the place where the miracle is happening. But there are a few times when he does not. And this is one of, those, one of those times. So for Jesus to tell this man, go, and go with the promise, and for that nobleman to receive this in faith and leave without Jesus, this is of no little significance. Can we relate? I can only imagine. I can only imagine from the word go as this man is heading back to Capernaum, however long it took between the words go and him actually meeting his servants who told him the news about his child becoming alive, I can only imagine that there was a world of years in that liminal space, leaving without Jesus, just hoping. Faith hangs on a thin but persistent hope. But what is fueling this faith, this hope? I believe that all the while, this hope, our hope, is driving at a question that is under the question. See, this nobleman, he gets the answer to the question. He gets the, he gets the healing for his child, but this is not actually where our story ends. So he and his whole household believed. Believed why? Believed what? In the healing of a child, sure, but this is not the apex of their belief. Because the question under the question is, are you good? Do you care? In so much of scripture, we see this. We see, I see this in my own life. I remember back in college, I would be so disrupted with verses I would find in scripture having to do with the role of women. Full disclosure. And I would be like, I have questions. I have questions about this passage. But what I didn't even realize at the time was that was my question, but there was a question underneath the question, and that was, is God sexist? And what are the implications of that? Oftentimes, we have a question under the question. 
And this happens a lot in Scripture. In fact, if we look closely, especially in the Old Testament, my good friend Moses, good old Moses, this happens a lot where he is often asking the question, how? And yet God is answering the question with who? Right? How is this going to happen, Lord? You tell them I am. Right? He's answering the question under the question. Lord, we're in front of this Red Sea and uh, this army's coming behind us. What are we going to do? Be still and know that I am God. I can imagine that was probably a little frustrating for Moses. Like, yeah, that's great. Thank you. But can I get a raft? (laughs) Something, right? But he's answering the question under the question. This is why this cannot simply be a story about faith producing miracles. Because when Jesus laments that signs and wonders are demanded for belief, what belief is he talking about? This man did not come like the other saying, what must I do to receive eternal life? He's driven by a faith in a miracle worker. Like so many others, he's like, so you're the guy that can do the thing? You're the miracle worker, right? You turn the water into wine, right? You're the guy. But underneath the desire for that action is this hunger for truth in the person and not simply the product. He took Jesus at his word, the passage says. I recently finished the book, Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nayari. I don't know if you heard about this book, it's great. It's a memoir um, told from the perspective of the author as a seventh grade self, um, as as an Iranian refugee living in Oklahoma in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's a very interesting book. It's a scatter plot of stories where he's talking about their lives in Oklahoma and he's remembering his life as a young boy back in Iran. Um, but I just love the title. Everything Sad is Untrue. And in the book, the author actually says, this is a, the title is actually taken a paraphrase from the story, The Lord of the Rings. It's the moment where Sam meets sort of the resurrected Gandalf, um, who up till that moment, who believed was dead because he had witnessed his death back in the minds of Moria. And when he sees Gandalf in front of him alive, he says, ah, the sad thing has become untrue. Here you are. And the author notes that in Lord of the Rings, at that point, all of the sad things in the story from that point forward begin to become untrue. I think this is what drove that royal official. I think it's what drives us. In our lives, we feel this, right? We want the sad thing to be untrue. We ache with the brokenness of this world, but even when we get miracles, One miracle or blessing does not eradicate all the other tragedies in our life. Like us, this man's most urgent need was his child's life. But that was not going to be the end of all the sad things. Right? This one miracle, while incredible, is just one miracle. Underneath our most urgent anxiety are all the other ones or ones to come. Like this man, you probably have a sad thing that you want to be made untrue, something that's at the top of your list. But there are also others. We don't just need one sad thing to become untrue. We need to know that there is a power that is sending shockwaves through all the sad things, a truth that is not only reversing one death, but is reversing all death. When we learn that this healing prompted the full conversion of this nobleman and his entire household, we discover that something more has happened. 
It was not just a magical act to consume and then thrust our hand out for another, but the fact that this healing points to a person, a God who is is good, who cares. It points to a story with a capital S. Deep down, we hunger for God to be good, to be real, to be accessible. The miracles and the parables are pointing to something. They're pointing to the person. Sure, we love a good vending machine God, right, who does. But this kind of transactional God is not satisfactory. In fact, it builds resentment and coldness, and we rage against a machine that doesn't do our bidding because we're actually created not to be pawns in an unpredictable game, but to be beloved, adopted children, brides, and friends of God. And we don't have to worry about changing our questions. Even the wrong question is the right question. We see it here. The man comes begging for his child life, his child's life, and what he gets in the end is the answer to all the questions, the more meaningful questions and the one he came with. Because personhood and relationship are at the heart of how we live and experience the kingdom. The only other story in John chapter 4, and you may already know this since you're going through the book of John this summer, is uh, the story of the Samaritan woman. And so juxtaposed against this, we've just heard the story of the Samaritan woman who actually did not need miracles. And yet her big takeaway from her interaction with Jesus was not how well he deliberated with her, but she says, he knew everything about me. He got me. It's Hagar's, the God who sees me, right? And this nobleman's encounter is not with a vendor of goods, but with a person of power and compassion. He came for the miracle, but his hunger was deeper, and so it resulted in a life of committing and following the way of Jesus. And not every story has a miraculous result. I'm sure that this nobleman hemmed and hawed over this as he was on his long walk back to Capernaum. But friends, even when the miracle doesn't happen, even when our lives are dotted with disappointments, tragedies, and the consequences of a broken world, there needs to be a bigger story that swallows these other stories. A catalyst that says, though this world is broken and full of toil, take heart. I have overcome the world. My kingdom has come. Death is defeated. And while we can hope that one day all the sad things will come untrue, in the meantime, because of the cross and resurrection, we can be active participants now in the foretaste of the kingdom where we get to taste justice and healing and goodness now, where some of the sad things come untrue right in front of us. Because Christ has called us to participate in the redemptive, restorative work he is doing all day, every day, right now. But to remain engaged with the Lord as agents of his kingdom, we must first remember. We have to remember the story of God because that tells us who God is. And we remember who God is, that tells us who we are. And this is why we begin now to move towards the table where we engage with this great capital T truth that through his sacrifice began making the sad things untrue. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.